Radio Mano Papachango. Seventeen. Wow, twenty sixteen was one for the record books, huh? Uh, yeah, lots of tragedy, lots of death, lots of mourning, grieving. Uh, lost a couple people from the podcast. Actually, we lost uh, Bennett. Those of you who uh, have listened to this for a while know that Bennett owned. Sure Design t-shirts, and he was the first person who reached out to me and said, uh, hey man, I love your podcast, let me support you by sending you these t-shirts at a ridiculously low price, which you can then sell, and uh, I'm not asking for anything. But, uh, you know, just out of, out of gratitude, I, I've supported Shore Design for whatever that's worth, which was absolutely nothing in the early days when I had, you know, 300 listeners. Um, but Bennett was there and uh, Bennett was great. And I always wanted to meet him. I always wanted to get to Thailand and, you know, get to know Bennett a little bit. And um, I finally did. And uh, he had uh, leukemia. He was being treated. I didn't know anything about it until I, uh, like a week or so before I was arriving in Thailand. And I emailed him and said, hey, man, I'm going to be in Thailand. I'll come up and visit you in Chiang Mai. And he said, yeah, I might be in Bangkok then. Let me know when you get here and, you know, we can meet in Bangkok. And so I, I emailed him again when I arrived in Bangkok. Like, dude, I'm here. You know, should I come see you in Chiang Mai? Are you in Bangkok? What's going on? I figured he had business or something. And that's when he told me like, hey, listen, I went to the dentist um, a month ago, had some toothing and they were doing, I think, a root canal. And uh, then I passed out and they did some testing and they found that um, my white blood cell count was messed up. And I had leukemia, so they I had to like hire a, a, a plane, I guess, and flew him down to Bangkok, and he was in the hospital in Bangkok. But he said, you know, I've had uh, chemo, and it went really well, and they're going to let me out in a couple of days, and I'm feeling great. And so if you want to come by the hospital, you know, come by. We can chat. If you want to do a podcast, we can do it here in my hospital room. Um, but I'm fine. Everything's great. And uh, Cassie and I, and he also said, if you're going to Chiang Mai, stay in my apartment. It's empty. You know, go ahead. I've never met the guy and he's offering me his apartment. Um, so Cassie and I were in Chiang Mai, didn't take him up on the apartment offer. That just felt weird, you know, just too, I don't know, too, too generous or whatever. You know, not knowing someone, just going to his apartment and. And he's like, yeah, and there's there's some really good weed in my desk. And, you know, the fridge is full of beer, you know, just to help yourself and be comfortable. And yeah, felt weird. But anyway, we uh, when we were in Bangkok, we went down and saw him in, in his room. And, um, you know, as he said, he was he was going to be out in a few days and he looked great. He was fine, vigorous, happy, healthy, you know, relieved to have gotten through this whole thing. 
and uh, he just had uh, one procedure left because they had done the they were doing a bone marrow transplant and they'd already taken the bone marrow from his mother and they were I guess cultivating that and he was done with the chemo he was going to go home hang out for a week or two and then go back in and have the bone marrow um, implanted I guess and that was it. He was great. He was out of the woods. And so we did the podcast. Didn't even talk about the leukemia. Um, just because that seemed like not really worth talking about at this point. Maybe in a follow-up we talk about it, you know, and he could look back on the whole experience. But we just talked about how he got to Thailand, how he got into the t-shirt business, other things he had done. And, uh, you know, just basically hey, what's happening, who are you, how's it going, and... Then uh, Cassie and I flew to South Africa and, you know, like usual with these podcasts, they sit on my hard drive for a few weeks, a month, whatever, depending on, you know, how topical it is and if I want to throw it up right away or it's something that can sit for a while and doesn't really matter. So his, his was sitting for a while and a few weeks later, I don't remember how it happened, but I guess maybe Facebook or something. Somebody told me that he died. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. You know, it's something like if you hear someone just randomly dies, it's that's one thing. But this is a guy who had, you know, he'd been at the precipice and now he was back. He was he he'd passed the danger. You know what I mean? It's it's like you have an auto accident and everybody's fine. And then while you're standing there waiting for the the tow truck, you have a heart attack and die. It's like, wait a minute. We just we just cheated death 10 minutes ago. And, and now, like, like, what? You're dying now? It, it... <sighs> anyway, so that was a weird one. That was uh, that was hard. Um, you know, I just met the guy and I really liked him and I'd been waiting years to meet him and, and to thank him and. I'm grateful I got a chance to, but damn. Anyway, uh, yeah, and then Justin, Justin Alexander, he'd been on the podcast a few times. And in fact, in Thailand, we were in Chiang Mai with Justin. Cassie and I were spending most of our time with Justin. We rented motorcycles and cruised up to Pai together and spent a lot of time in Chiang Mai together. And after dinner... Cassie would go back to the room and or hang out or whatever. And uh, Justin and I went to this place and where they gave foot massages and we would sit there and drink a beer and on the street and get our feet and legs massaged and just hang out and chat. And it was a very Chiang Mai kind of thing to do. And uh, yeah, those of you who follow the podcast know that Justin, after Thailand, he went to Nepal. He helped rebuild a, a school or maybe just build a school in a rural village that had been hit hard by the earthquake a couple of years ago. And um, after that, he went to India and bought a Royal Enfield motorcycle, which he was going to cruise around India and, on. And uh, But before he really got into that trip, he was in a valley in the Himalayas and he decided he was going to go live in a cave with a, a Baba who had invited him along and he uh, 
he'd spent some time, I guess, living in the mountains, uh, and his back was hurting, and he he sent this strange, enigmatic message um, that he was going to go do this, and he wasn't feeling real well, but he was going to do it because it was a great opportunity, and... Um, you know, and I wrote back to him and said, uh, yeah, man, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Because he and I had developed sort of a a bit of a father-son vibe, which is weird for me to be saying because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that I'm old enough to be the father of an adult, you know, and never having had kids, that's all that's all a head trip for me. You know, it hasn't been an organic experience. I've always been the the sun on that side of the equation. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was weird and touching. And anyway, so he was, I wrote back to him and I was sort of protective, but you know, like my father was, I could never tell anyone what to do, especially guys, not even my kid, but, but I did express my fear at what he wanted to do and and like hmm, sure man you're not feeling good your back's hurting and now you're gonna go live in a cave for three weeks are you sure I mean, this is really what you want to do and and the end of his message said if i don't come back don't come looking for me thought okay that's sort of a funny thing to say but not not atypical for him and then I wrote back and I said, go where you need to go, man. Just come back. Well, Justin hasn't come back. So that's another guy, another guest on the podcast that um, probably is no more. There's a slight chance, I guess, that he uh, just decided to stage his own death for some reason that nobody can understand, but uh, that's a pretty slight chance. I can't imagine him putting his friends and family through the pain that they've been through, um, you know, just for a a thrill or whatever. And as far as anyone knows, the Russian mob wasn't out to get him or anything that he would need to disappear for. So anyway, um, yeah, his body hasn't been found, but his things were found in the, a blanket and a flute and some other things. And <clears throat> so he's probably no more. Anyway, 2016, holy shit. And then you've got your Prince and your David Bowie and your George Michael. And what a year. And we've got Donald Trump to look forward to in 2017. I'm 10 minutes into this and I haven't even mentioned the guest. Uh, this week's guest is Peter Sudfeld. He's a Canadian-American-Hungarian research psychologist. Very interesting guy. Um, and I'm kind of embarrassed about this episode, truth be told, um, because I walked into it totally ignorant of who this man is. And uh, he deserves... Well, let me just say my ignorance is in no way a reflection of how interesting this guy is. What happened was I was in Vancouver and I had scheduled um, to meet with um, Gabor Mate, who'd been on the podcast before. 
And then sort of at the last minute, uh, Gabor wrote to me and said, hey, man, just, you know, I've got to I'm leaving the country earlier than I thought or I don't remember what it was, but something had come up and, and we weren't able to meet. And uh, Matt, who runs this uh, the best of podcast book that we're doing up there with Misfit Press, uh, Matt and I had been corresponding. We were going to have dinner, I think, and whatever. And I, I was like, hey, Matt. I've got a free day suddenly, you know, my morning is free. Uh, I thought I was going to be with Gabor Mate. Suddenly it's open. Is there, are there any people up here you think would be good on the podcast? And Matt, of course, listens to the podcast. He knows the sorts of people I find interesting. So he wrote back to me and he was like, look, here are two people. I reached out to them. They're both free tomorrow morning. Uh, one is this guy, Peter Sudfeld, who's a professor that I had at uh, UBC, super interesting guy. And then the other guy is uh, Ted uh, Slingerland, who's an expert in ancient Chinese philosophy. Uh, they're both free. They're both willing to talk to you, hear their numbers, you know, or their email, you know, take it from there. So you've already heard the episode with Ted, very interesting cat. And so I basically just went from... Uh, Ted to Peter ran over there, had no idea who he was. And I go to this guy's house, beautiful, beautiful building in Vancouver. And within moments, I realized like, whoa, I'm way out of my depth here. This guy is fascinating, a world class thinker, researcher, um, uh, expert. He's done incredibly interesting research, particularly on how humans uh, respond to restricted input. So he's one, you know, very uh, knowledgeable about sensory deprivation tanks, what we now call, you know, floating. Um, he's studied people in the Arctic. Uh, he studied um, astronauts uh, in the Antarctic, explorers, people who are uh, in solitary confinement, people who are experiencing. Uh, sensory deprivation or extended solitude, things like that. Very interesting man, very um, insightful in the way the brain works. He's also, his biography is, you know, we, we could have spent hours just talking about his childhood. He was a Holocaust survivor. He's, um, you know, very interesting academic career. He spent time in the U.S. military. Anyway, you'll hear fascinating dude and i'm very very happy to have had him uh, on the podcast but as i said i do feel a little sheepish about you know just wandering into his apartment with no knowledge whatsoever of who he is and he was very gracious in forgiving me uh for that um a guy of his stature certainly expects people to come to him knowing perfectly who he is and, and, you know, why they're there. But I guess part of the charm of the podcast is that, um, you know, that I do try, even if I know who the person is, I try to go into it uh, unprepared in the sense that the conversation's going to go where it goes. So I'm not... I don't go into it with a structure like, okay, we got to cover this and this and this. I, I, you know, obviously, if you're an expert in sensory deprivation, then we're going to talk somewhat about sensory deprivation. But I'm much more interested in the things that come up organically in the conversation. So, so it's not as big a, 
a deficit as it would be in some some other types of things. But I did uh, feel a little strange about that, and I thought I should mention it. So I had a, a weird, weird, very L.A. kind of experience the other day I wanted to tell you about. I was at a party on Christmas Day at uh, Jake Johansson's house, who's, you know, my frequent guest on the podcast and a friend. And um, we were talking about Jake had had recommended that I listen to a couple episodes of Doug Stanhope's podcast recently. Uh, it's called the Cliffhanger episodes, part one and part two. If you listen to Stanhope, you may have heard these. Uh, Doug Stanhope is a American comedian, a very kind of, you know, he's in that world of comedians who are just really pushing the limits of of comedy, uh, you know, of he's in the in the tradition, I would say, of Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, the later George Carlin, not the early hippy dippy weatherman shit. Um, the uh, Bill Hicks, you know, like truth tellers. Now, all comics try to be truth tellers, but some for some that's the center of what they're doing, and it's almost like the comedy is is a secondary. And um, so anyway, Stanhope is in that tradition. And Jake recommended I listen to this. It's three or four years ago. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spoil it for you. Um, but to give you a sense of what it's about, it, it the episodes are uh, about grief, I think is the best way to put it. And the reason that Jake wanted me to listen to them was that uh, they were they're examples of how different comedians are from normal people, I think. And um, in the sense that, you know, normal people would would say there's some things that you shouldn't laugh about. And I think that comics, by and large, don't see the world that way there is nothing that isn't appropriate for laughter but laughter is a much more nuanced thing in the mind of a comic I think laughter doesn't necessarily imply any sort of distance it it implies recognition it can imply it can include grieving it can be Laughter isn't always about something necessarily being light and and funny in the sense of pleasurable. Um, You know, there's very dark humor, and that is also humor. And some people, uh, probably myself included, process grief through humor. And even to the point where feeling that there is no real like what is what response to the absurdity of life is there you can't beat it you're never going to beat death you're never going to escape tragedy you're never going to outrun grief um but you can laugh about it and so it's kind of like you know those those famous last words i i always love the ones that are funny you know, I love the ones who, I mean, who was it? I don't know if it was, um, 
Oscar Wilde is credited with having said so many clever things, but it may have been him, may have been someone else. But apparently on on his deathbed, he looked around the room and he said, you know, either I or this wallpaper will have to go. (laughs) And that was it. You know, it's like that kind of like go out with a joke. That seems about the best you can do. Uh, Your ship sinking. You might as well make a fart joke as you go down. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what other, what response is more dignified or, or noble or, or worthy. But anyway, so, so we're talking about that. I check it out. If, if you've got the stomach for it, if you want to hear people mixing extreme grief and hilarity, check out the cliffhanger episodes of the Doug Stanhope podcast from three years ago or so. And uh, and let me know what you think. Anyway, we were talking about that. There was another guy at the party, um, Alan. What was his name? Alan Harvey. He's a friend of uh, of Jake's. And uh, I recognized his face, and I, I thought I knew him or something. But it was one of those LA moments where, I'd like, no, I recognized his face because the guy's been on Mad Men for five episodes or five seasons, and. Uh, he, and in fact, the other day I was just watching the man in the high castle and there he is in that. He's the guy, if you've seen that in the first season, he's the, the guy who makes the origami, little origami things. He plays a major role in the first five or six episodes. Anyway, he was there and we're talking about this issue of how comics think differently. And I said, Oh, have you guys seen the aristocrats? The aristocrats is a movie that's very much about this. It's about how comics, uh, think differently than normal people. And, and both Jake and Alan are like, oh, yeah, that's a great film that, that really, yeah, yeah, that gets into this. And uh, so the conversation continued. And then I came home and I thought, oh, I want to watch that film, The Aristocrats, again. I knew I had it on my hard drive somewhere. So I I fired it up and I sat down and I watched The Aristocrats again. And lo and behold, there's Jake and there's Alan. Both of them are in the goddamn movie. And they didn't say a word about it. Now, how weird is that? I mean, if if someone was like, if someone said to me, hey, have you ever heard of uh, the Young Turks? I'd say, sure, I've heard of it. I know, I know Jenk, and I've been on that show a bunch of times. I, I mean, that's the Young Turks, you know? This is a, a major film. This is featuring all these world-class comics. Both these guys were on it. They didn't even mention it. And I thought, that's weird. What is that? That's some kind of weird... Is I mean, is that some kind of like weird meta L.A. cool thing that you don't mention that you were on this show or movie? It's like that's uncool to be. I mean, is that seen as self-promotion or something? I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. I talked to Jake about it and he was like, no, I thought I mentioned it. I thought, didn't we say that we were on it? I really don't know. If you had said you were on it, I would have been like, holy shit, what was that like? You know? So I was thinking about that in terms of being in LA and was talking with my friend, Chris James about it, who's also been on the podcast. And he was like, you know, I said to him, I, I he grew up here in Hollywood and he grew, he had lots has lots of famous friends and stuff. And I was like, is that a thing here? Is it like uncool to get, you know, to say that you were in this or that, you know, this person? Because 
it's like you see if you're in L.A. and you see someone in the grocery store who looks like, you know, Sharon Stone or something, it could very well be Sharon Stone. Right. And so there's like this culture in L.A. of if you're cool, you don't get excited about stuff like that. And getting excited about stuff like that is what the tourists do. It's almost like if, if you live in Barcelona, you never order sangria in a restaurant because people, local people in Barcelona, sangria is the thing from southern Spain. So it's just there for the tourists. That's like a dead giveaway that you're a tourist if you're ordering sangria in a restaurant. Um, so it's almost like a local culture thing. And I was thinking how one of the things that's always annoyed me about L.A. and like my cousins who live here and, you know, that there's this sort of smug, uh, blasé attitude, um, which bums me out because in L.A. it's like cool to not get excited about things. It's cool to be unimpressed. And... Like what an what a fucked up attitude that is because it's anti life. I mean, fuck. I mean, if we're not getting excited about stuff, what's the point? You know? If you're so cool that nothing impresses you, then doesn't life just get really fucking boring? It it seems like a I don't know, like spiritual suicide or something to to cultivate this sort of anti-cool vibe. And anyway, I was talking with Chris about it and he, and he was like, yeah, I think, I think you're right about that because, you know, it, it does sort of expose you as being a bit of a rube if you get excited about shit like that. And then he told me that last year after the Oscars, he was at uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's party. And it's like and he like walks into a room and it's like, I don't know, he named like 10, 10, you know, uh, incredibly famous people. You know, there was Ben Affleck and, you know, and, and, you know, whatever. And he named all these people and it was like, holy shit, dude, like that's like I've known you for years and you haven't even mentioned that to me. You didn't even tell me like, holy shit. You, and he's like, yeah, I know it's it's. It's strange, you know, like unless you ask me, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't tell you. And it's like, wow, that's I am such a I don't know. I guess I'm I'm not cool because I find that kind of shit exciting. Not that I'm you know, you've heard me yammer on about my Peter Gabriel thing. It's not that they're famous. That's cool. It's just like, wow, that's like that's this person I've seen on TV so much. It's kind of I find it kind of cool. I don't know. Anyway. Enough, enough for me. It's almost half an hour I've been yammering on here. This episode is brought to you by nobody. You. It's brought to you by you and other listeners. Now, now, see, I didn't want to have those annoying commercials, but now I'm in danger of being like those annoying PBS fun drives, you know, brought to you by listeners like you and Archer Daniels Midland. No, no, it'll never be brought to you by Archer Daniels Midland or Monsanto. I guarantee it. Anyway, thank you for all of you who support the podcast through Patreon.com and Amazon affiliates. Go through my my page there at uh, thatchrisryan.com or chrisryanphd.com if you prefer the academic approach. 
Um, click on that Amazon link and some of that goes to the podcast, as you know. Thanks for all that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your reviews on iTunes. Thanks for telling your friends. And thanks for being you. It's always cool to know that there's someone out there on the other side of this listening. And now I am not going to say ciao because for some reason I say ciao on this podcast and I never say ciao in normal life. I don't know what that is. Maybe I'm nervous being in front of a mic. It makes me weird. Anyway, thanks for listening. Catch you next week. I'm going to play you into this with a song called Forest by podcast listener David Beckingham. You can uh, check him out at SoundCloud forward slash David Beckingham. B-E-C-K-I-N-G-H-A-M. Just the way it sounds. This is Forest by David Beckingham. The album is called Just When the Light.
Vancouver with uh, Peter Sutfeld, who, uh, well, I, as I said before I turned on the, the microphone, my friend Matt, I, I found I had some extra time today and I sent him an email and said, so who do you know in Vancouver that I should meet who's really interesting? And you were at the top of the list. Ooh, I'm honored. So uh, thank you for making time to, to no share problem. your work. Uh, I, I know very little about you uh, other than what Peter told me. Um, I'm totally unprepared, so that's the way I do this. <laughs> okay. That <laughs> keeps it organic. Um, but I know that you, from what he said, you, you've worked with um, flotation tanks and yes. sort of sensory deprivation, and you've worked yes. with um, PTSD, certain trauma, people who've yes. experienced trauma. Uh, yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, so are you a psychologist? Worked with or? is studied, not in not worked with in a clinical sense because oh, okay. I'm not a clinician. Never You're was. A researcher. Uh, can't treat people, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm a psychologist. And um, in what was your area of, of focus? Well, my, um, my degree is in uh, experimental psychology uh -huh. from Princeton. And I was basically an experimental social psychologist uh, with cognitive leaning. So I studied reasoning, decision making um, in social situations and in people under stress and that sort of thing. And I was doing sensory deprivation research as it was then called. It's not called that anymore. Uh, it's called Restricted Environmental Stimulation. R-E-S-T, which is a nice abbreviation mm, for it. That's clever. Um, back in those days, the tank hadn't been invented yet, so we were using dark soundproof chambers mm. where uh, the participant would lie in a bed um, for 24 hours in most of our studies. And there was liquid diet food, rather bland in taste. We didn't want to stimulate uh, the taste sensation or chewing. Um, and it was available through a plastic tube that came right up to the bed, so they didn't have to get off the bed to um, get water or the liquid food. And a toilet on the, on, at, the, at the foot of the bed, chemical toilet, uh, but we asked them to defecate before the experiments began so they wouldn't have to do that, they could, they could urinate. And that was the only reason for them to get off the bed. Um, we removed, you may recall uh, from uh, introductory textbooks and such, that in the early years of the research on sensory deprivation, uh, there was a lot of 
writing on how stressful it was and it was like brainwashing and it was like a model psychosis and people had hallucinations and all this other kind of stuff. And um, my first experience was it, with it was as a naive subject because um, a professor at Princeton called Jack Vernon had a sensory deprivation lab and so I volunteered to be a subject. $20 for lying quietly and not doing anything for 24 hours back in those days, it was the 60s. Um, you know, that was like money for nothing. Yeah. And uh, so I did, and I, and I quit after a few hours. And then I thought back on it and said, why did I quit? Yeah. And I don't want to go into too much detail, but basically what it was was that the um, procedure for putting people into the chamber scared people so much uh -huh. that when they were in there, uh, they tended to feel very stressed and, and uh, scared. Many of them quit, and then many of them had these negative uh, experiences that, that were reported in the literature. So when I started doing the research, I removed all those um, basically ancillary procedural uh, details. And so we, they went, people went into the chamber not scared, and the uh, completion rate of a 24-hour scheduled session went up uh, from about 50% to about 95%. Mm. And there were no hallucinations, and there was no mm. model psychosis, and there was no nothing. Right. But there were some very interesting cognitive effects. Uh, memory improved, for example. A number of other things as well. And then when the tanks, uh, when John Lilly invented the flotation tank uh, in the 70s, uh, then I started doing both for a while, and then basically switched to the tanks because that only takes one hour per subject instead of 24, so it's a lot easier to do. Were you in, using those early vertical tanks? With no, the, the God, bell? no. Yeah. The, those were not flotation tanks. Those were immersion tanks, uh. and people were really scared <laughs> because, you know, being totally underwater yeah. is uh, evolutionarily not yeah. what we do. Yeah. And so people were connected to an air pump uh, with a hose, and they were assured that there'd be a monitor uh, outside all the time who would immediately step in if something went wrong with the equipment. But they couldn't see that person. Yeah. And, you know, you always wonder, suppose the air pump stops. Suppose the monitor is, you know, having a bathroom break or something. Right. You know, you yeah. die there. Yeah. So people were really scared. Uh, but then when he invented the flotation tank, where you're lying on your back and your face is out of the water and so on, uh, that became the standard now. And uh, it's very comfortable and it's very... Um, relaxing and, yeah. and pleasant, and um, has a, a myriad of beneficial effects on health and on cognitive processes, emotions, everything else. It's really good. And, uh, you know, it has now spread around the world as a commercial enterprise. And yeah. there are, I think there are three, at least three tanks, commercial tanks, just in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, maybe four. My friend told me last night he, he thought there were ten centers. We had dinner right next to one on, on uh, fourth. Oh, Float House. Yeah, Float yeah. House, right. We okay. had the Thai place right next to it. Um, yeah, a good friend of mine is a guy named Joe Rogan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I've, I've heard the name, yeah. Well, he is, if you talk to people in the modern flotation industry, uh -huh. he's like a saint to them because he he has a huge audience. He has a podcast with you know, a million oh, yeah. downloads. That's how, I, that's how I get ran across the name. Right, yeah. yeah. And he's a huge uh, proponent of floating. He's got a tank at his house, and he's uh, constantly talking about it. And, mm. um, you know, he's really responsible for a lot of the sort of popular upsurge in, in interest. Mm. I was just floating four days ago in Austin, Texas, at uh, Zero Gravity Institute, a wonderful mm. place. You floated? 
Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done it a lot, 30, 40 times. <laughs> you know, I'm always running into people. Uh, we were having lunch yesterday, my wife and I, with her college roommate and her husband. And so we were chatting, and I mentioned flotation, and the guy said, oh, yeah, I float, I love floating. You know, yeah. I had never heard that before from him. I didn't know that what he was doing. Um, my oldest two grandsons have, are, are all crazy about floating. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's become very popular. It's very, yeah. It I must mean, be it's, it's gratifying terrific. for you in your lifetime to have seen it, it go from this arcane experimental yes. thing to now you just, it's like going yes. to a yoga class. Yeah. It's it is. It, I just love seeing it yeah. burgeoning around the world. I hope you have a lifetime membership uh, <laughs> at every float center everywhere. Well, I if don't not, have. I don't have a lifetime membership, but, well, but I, I get in, invited if I, when I'm going to go float it. Well, anyone who's, who owns a float tank center in Vancouver, uh, get in touch with me, and I'll put you in touch with Peter. <laughs> if anyone deserves a, a free a VIP pass, it's you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, well, there's an annual uh, flotation conference, I yeah, don't know if you know about in it, Portland. in Portland. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. And yeah. so far, whenever I had free time, I was always one of the keynote speakers. Ah, good. So they, they know who I am, and ah, all, right, all the good. people who go there... You know, yeah. at least meet me or good. see me talk. Did you talk. did you know John Lilly personally? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. So that must be how you know Stanley. That whole crowd. Pretty much. Yeah. That. Yeah. That. Uh, I I love Stanley. You know, since he and I, I should I should say Stanley Krippner, uh, who's been on the podcast four or five times. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, uh, I was just with him last weekend. I mentioned to you in San Francisco, I set up a joint podcast with him and a man named Wim Hof. Do you know him? No. He's known as the Iceman. He holds all like 26 Guinness records for um, the longest immersion in cold water, like ice cold oh, water. It's sort okay. of an interesting corollary to flotation. Yeah. He climbed Mount Everest in shorts. He's you know, <laughs> run marathons above the Arctic Circle <laughs> in shorts. So he's really, I mean, he's fascinating because he has demonstrated uh, conscious control of autonomic systems, so immune response and temperature, you know, he can raise and lower his skin temperature and core temperature. It's, okay. So now he's being studied at Stanford and, and other places to try to figure out how he does these things. But the okay, uh, next question is, why does he do these things? Well, that's actually very, uh, it's very moving because uh, what happened was when he was young, he was in his late 20s. He and his wife had four little kids, and his wife committed suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, she was on psychiatric medication, and, you know, things went wrong. And uh, so he was left with these four little kids on his own. And the only way that he could sort of rest his mind was to jump in extremely cold water and just, you know, because that kicked in the survival, uh -huh. you know, sort of lizard yeah. brain, brain response. And it rested his cognitive, you know, he, he stopped worrying and stopped thinking and stopped feeling bad and just survived. And he, it, it became a discipline for him. And so he just kept going further and further because he kept finding like, well, I can do these things that everyone says are impossible. And right. yeah, he's a fascinating guy. Anyway, that's, this is why it's called tangentially speaking. We'll just <laughs> go off on tangents at will. That's good. I do that all the time. <laughs> good. Um, so uh, you mentioned earlier that in your early research that there were um, interesting effects that you were finding, cognitive effects. You mentioned uh, increase in memory. What what other right. things were you finding? This was during your graduate work at Princeton? This, during and then for quite a few years after, mm -hmm. uh, after I got my PhD. 
Um, I spent one more year at Princeton and then a year at Illinois. Uh -huh. And then uh, went to Rutgers. I stayed there for seven years, uh -huh. and that's I was doing a lot of that. And Are you also, American? I'm a dual citizen. Uh -huh. I'm originally from Hungary. Oh, interesting. And yeah. so my father and I uh, emigrated to the United States after the war, uh -huh. and then I eventually got the job offer from here, and I came up with, and fell in love with the city, and uh, was yeah. very impressed by the university. And yeah. so it's I, a beautiful place. I figured I'd come yeah. up here and stay about five years, and then go back to the U.S. Uh -huh. And that was um, 44 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Things happen. Yeah. I lost track of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's, I've lived in Barcelona for 26 years, I think. Uh, I was on my way somewhere else. I was actually, my plan was to spend a year or two in Andalusia, and then I was going to take the Trans-Siberian from Budapest okay. mm -hmm. to Beijing. Uh, I was just waiting for the Burmese government to fall. You probably remember there was a time oh, I remember. that they seemed on the verge and Anyan Sun Chi had just won the, the Nobel Peace Prize. And I thought that's going to be in a year or two, that's yeah. going to collapse. She'll take over. Not quite. They'll open up to the West. I'll go and teach English. It'll be this amazing thing. And, you know. But I got robbed in Barcelona. That's mm. what happened to me. And in the time it took to get a new passport, I made friends and someone offered me a job and life happens. Yeah. It yeah. does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. has, yeah. has a way of doing that. Yeah. Um, so you were, when you were teaching, were you, were you teaching about the, the research that you'd been doing in, with no, the sensory No, not really. Uh, I was, yeah. you know, I'm teaching regular psychology courses. I taught right. introductory psych mm. and experimental psych and social psych, personality, so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. And this is, uh, when did you finish your PhD? I got my PhD in 63. Okay, so you okay. were like in the midst of a really interesting time historically. In, at you universities in, in the 60s. Yeah, yes. In psychology, I mean, yeah. that was a very exciting time, I imagine. It was, yeah. and um, it was interesting because I didn't know very much about psychology when I got to grad school because although I had been a psychology major, I went to Queens College of the City University of New uh, York. Yeah. And my career plan at the time was to be a professional soldier. Really? And, yeah. That's an interesting choice. Well, why, um, why, why be a soldier? Was it the memories partly, of the war? Partly because of that, partly because, you know, um, I'm Jewish and uh, we were in the Holocaust. And I felt that we were helpless in the face of mm. armed power well we were yeah uh, I didn't like that feeling and I was also very grateful to the soldiers of the Allied forces that uh, saved us and uh, liberated us and um, so I wanted to do that and I think that um, maybe not so consciously but I wanted to be powerful part of a powerful disciplined well-organized yeah. something right and the military was the obvious choice right I, my family also has a military tradition um, Almost all of my male forebears served mm. uh, in the Hungarian army or the Austro-Hungarian army. Um, we have a remote cousin, General Sir John Monash, who is an Australian, commanded the Australian uh, Corps in World War One, and so on. And so, you know, I had that affinity. The Australian Corps in World War One. He wasn't at Gallipoli, was he? Hmm? Was he? A, was Gallipoli the famous Australian? Yes, he, he commanded the retreat, <laughs> which uh, he pulled off without any casualties, oh. which was a miracle in, in, in that campaign. That was a disaster, yeah, as you know. Yeah. Um, so he was a colonel then, I think, or maybe just promoted the brigadier. 
He was wow. a militia officer, not a regular officer, mm. and Jewish. Wow. Uh, and the son of an immigrant. So for him, you know, he eventually rose to the equivalent of a four-star general, yeah. was knighted on the battlefield by the king. Wow. Uh, first time since the Middle Ages that that had happened. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. So he, he was uh, really something. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so I'm proud to claim that he's a remote cousin, you know, something yeah. like that. Um, anyhow, um, so <clears throat> I, I, I dropped out of college after a year and a half and enlisted in the Army because I decided if I was going to be a career officer, it would be good to have some experience from what, what the uh, enlisted men experienced, so I did. And when I came out, I went back to college and joined ROTC and uh, decided to major in psychology because I thought that would be helpful in uh, handling troops, you know, leading troops, mm. which was probably a pipe dream. <laughs> I don't think it would be all that helpful, but anyway. Were you posted overseas when you were in? I spent uh, over a year in the Philippines, yeah. Ah, and this was the late 50s? This was in the late 50s. So yeah. before, after Korea, but before Vietnam was heating yeah, up. Yeah, but during the Hukbella Hap. Uh, oh, tell me Korea. about that. What is that? Hukbella? That was a communist revolution in the Philippines. Ah, from the but, southern islands, like Mindanao? No, it wasn't, it wasn't the Muslims. Yeah. It was the communists. Yeah, because uh, I think now the Muslim, no, well, the Chinese are supporting. Yeah, it's, all, it's, all it's a mess, mess now. Yeah. I mean, the, the Muslim thing was going on in the Mindanao, yeah. but in Luzon, where, where I was stationed, and the other islands, there were the, the hooks. Mm. This was the last gasp of their revolution. They were almost finished. By, by the end of the, by the time I left, they were just about non-existent. Um, so anyway. Uh, so I came back, uh, majored in psych, but I spent most of my time at ROTC. I wound up as commander of the cadet corps, um, but I didn't pay much attention to psychology. Hmm. In my last year of undergraduate work, uh, I discovered that in order to get my degree, I would have to take a course in experimental psych, which I didn't want, but anyway. And there were two courses. One was a full year course for people who thought they might want to go to graduate school in psychology or knew that they would, and the half-year course for people who knew that they would not. So naturally, I took the half-year course, <laughs> and it was taught by a woman named Alice Lasker. She just died recently, uh, who was an immigrant from Czechoslovakia, refugee, um, who was basically a social psychologist and had never taught experimental psych before. So she didn't really know how to teach it. Mm. Now, the way you teach experimental psych, uh, if you know how, is that you get a lab manual, and every week that your students do one of the experiments that are described in the manual, and uh, if the results turn out the way the manual says they should, then they did it right, and otherwise they did it wrong. Very simple. Well, Alice didn't know that, and so what Alice did <laughs> was she assigned a book called Experimental Psychology by Woodworth and Schlossberg. You may have run across it. It's a, it's a classic. But it's a classic that was written for advanced graduate students and is a reference book for actual psychologists, practicing mm. psychologists. I guess she didn't know that either. And what we did was go through, ch the chapters are arranged by topic, so there's color perception and hearing and whatever. Um, and we went through it chapter by chapter, topic by topic. And in every case, she had us find a, top, find a question or a problem that didn't have a solution, didn't have an answer yet, <clears throat> and design an experiment to try to get an answer. Okay? Mm. So all through, I, I went to a science-oriented high school, Stuyvesant, at, at New York. Now it's famous, Stuyvesant. It is, yeah, yeah it's a good school. 
but so we learned about science and and you know as an undergraduate I learned about science but what we learned is research means you go to the library and you find out what's known about this and I suddenly found that research means finding out things that nobody had ever found out before right my life changed huh. okay I was totally smitten by this idea uh, I was six months away from being commissioned and going back into the military right I rode away to the <laughs> Defense Department saying I would like to have a delay in being called to active duty. Because I'd already served three years uh, active duty, including overseas, et cetera, et cetera. They said, okay, you can go to grad school before you come back on active duty. So by now, I was about three months away from graduation. And how old are you at this point? Uh, I was uh, 22, 23. 22, right. Yeah. Um, let's see, no, 25. Hmm. Yeah, because I had the three years, had in, the the years in the Army. Yeah. yeah, right. So um, I started. Then I started frantically writing away to graduate schools, and this is very late in the uh, in the application um, yeah. cycle. Fortunately, I had good marks, uh, even without studying that much. I'm, I was fairly intelligent back in those days. Um, <laughs> back in those days, and I had a and I had a good European pre pre college education. So I, I knew quite a lot about how lot, old were you when you when you left Hungary? Well I was ten when we left Hungary and then we stayed three years in Vienna waiting for a visa. We were just we were DPs, right. displayed persons. Yeah. And so you had to take your turn, you know, right? first yeah. come, first served. Right. So we were there for three years and then so I was thirteen when I got to the States. Yeah. Um so I got into every graduate program that I applied to except one, Stanford. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they had filled, a, filled their quotas, quota for New York Jews that year. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so I decided to go to Princeton. Um, and um, so I, I, did my, I did my PhD in three years, um, MA, MA in two years and one more year for the PhD. And then, uh, then I wrote away to the Defense Department again saying, how about letting me out of my uh, active duty obligation altogether? And once again, I'd served my three years, uh, and I'd been in the reserves uh, since I got out of the Army. And I was, this is Air Force now, Air Force Reserve. And they said, oh, okay, we don't really need you. Um, back, this, this was before Vietnam went into high yeah. gear. And in any case, uh, I can't fly because of my glasses, so they didn't need another whatever I would have been. I was supposed to be air intelligence, um, and they changed my uh, occupational specialty to psychology. Hmm. So there was a, an Air Force lab at Wright-Patterson Air Base, that Air Force Base, that was then running uh, basically some sensory deprivation type studies uh, in preparation for space flight. Oh, right. And so I got, a, I got a letter from the colonel that commanded that, saying that if I went on active duty, they would like me to come and, and work there. And I thought, yeah, that'd be good. But I also decided that, you know, being enamored of experimentation and research, I would want to do the research that I want to do, not what they wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. So I went, you know, stayed in academia as a civilian, yeah, stayed in the reserves for another 10 years or so but um, never went back into the service. Were you concerned at all that your research would be used, for example, um, sensory deprivation as, a, as an interrogation tool? Or? Well, one of the things, see, I, I, <laughs> my dissertation was on attitude change and sensory deprivation, uh -huh. okay? And in preparation for that, 
I mean, attitude change is a classic social psychology topic, right? In preparation for that, I read everything I could my hands on about brainwashing and interrogations and all of that, and it's all garbage, mm. okay? Um, most of the brainwashing stuff was overstimulating people, not understimulating them, shouting at them, screaming at them, beating them, sitting in groups where everybody would criticize you about what an evil person and warmonger you are, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing like sensory deprivation. Hmm. Um, so I decided that despite all the public hullabaloo, that it's just like I had experienced that, you know, sensory deprivation is supposed to be so bad for you and so upsetting and so on, and it wasn't either. Uh, if you did it right, mm -hmm. and so I basically dismissed that idea, and I still do. I think it's totally wrong and um, totally wrong-headed, and I think much of the um, accusation of of that is uh, politically motivated, frankly. Right. right. So I think the the um, probably after the Korean War there was a lot of that, and then it was revived in the. 60s about the um, interrogation of uh, Irish Republican Army prisoners in Britain because they were hooded. Uh -huh. okay? um, they were hooded, yes, that, that is true. Uh, at the same time, they were beaten, pushed around, made to stand in uncomfortable positions, yelled at from every direction by people they didn't know, they couldn't see. And the hood was partly to disorient them so they couldn't see where they were or anything and also partly so they couldn't see the informants that were informing on them who right. were there, okay? And make them feel very vulnerable. Yeah, with nothing to do with sensory deprivation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, were you Were, were you involved in the sort of hallucinogenic, the psychotomimetic, the LSD, psilocybin, no. Timothy Leary, uh -huh. none of that stuff? None of that stuff. Yeah. No. Because there's sort of, I can see overlap, you know, with uh, usefulness and, you know, obviously alteration of consciousness. And there was a lot of research going on in those yeah. days before it was all. Well, I, you know, I kind of followed John Lilly's career. Yeah. And he developed a penchant for taking drugs and then going into the flotation tank. Yeah. And... Um, he had what I think were delusions and hallucinations, which he believed to be real. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's tried various, various kinds of drugs, some of which were in the long run dangerous, um, brain altering, not just consciousness altering. And so I, you know, I, I basically think of him the way I think about um, the doctors who injected themselves with yellow fever mm. uh, when they were building the Panama Canal, and that was yellow fever was a major killer. He was a martyr to science, right? Um, and I had no wish to follow that, <laughs> that yeah. path. I, yeah. I love science, but I don't particularly want to be a martyr. Yeah. Were you aware of his career when he was doing the dolphin communication research? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow. That that was some interesting work. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Was interesting. In the Bahamas, they flooded the the house and had yeah. the dolphins in the yeah. living room, and yeah. Yeah, there was, I read somewhere recently one of the women who I guess was a lab assistant or something there has written a memoir or she's been interviewed. Oh, I haven't seen She that. lived in the house with the dolphins. And yeah, yeah, yeah it's very interesting. Well, you know, I mean, clearly dolphins are very intelligent animals, but they're animals. Well, as are we, right? There's 
Yes, but they're not human animals, yeah. and we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm sure they're saying something similar about us. I mean, they're very lovable. I know that. I, yeah. mean, I, I have tennis who went swimming with the dolphins and all that. They're yeah. very pleasant companions yeah. and so on. But, yeah. Um, well, they're, they're also very sexual. And one of the things that this woman said that sort of caused a big stir was that there was a male dolphin that sort of became bonded to her. And she, part of her responsibility was running different tests and getting, the, you know, training the dolphin to do this or that. And, yeah. and the dolphin would not cooperate until he'd had an orgasm. Really? Yeah. So she, you know, figured this out pretty early on. Yeah. And so she would manually stimulate this dolphin to have an orgasm and then they could go on and do their research. Oh, there's... And for her, it was just <laughs> like, you know, okay, that's, you know, part of the job. And, and she spoke about it very frankly. And, you know, in this day and age, that's considered completely no, <laughs> scandalous. I, I can just see it, you know, what did you, what do you do in your job? Oh, I'm a dolphin masturbator. <laughs> yeah, well, people do it with horses every day. Uh, you know, there's stallions, they can't, they're too yeah. expensive to let them actually have sex so they yeah yeah yes. interesting jobs out there <laughs> yeah, right yeah Do you, have you ever heard of Franz Duval he's a primatologist he's a, a Dutch primatologist I was I think it was on the podcast with him where he told a story about um, bonobos which are like chimpanzees yeah. uh, that he'd worked with for years and uh, in Holland and now he's at Yerkes Primate Center in uh, at Emory in Atlanta Anyway, he, he'd gone back to uh, Holland and went and visited this troop of bonobos that he hadn't seen in 15 years or so. And there was an adult female that he'd worked with a lot uh, when she was a juvenile. And he saw her and she recognized him and he went over to the side of the enclosure, which was bars. And uh, he was up close to her, you know, making eye contact, and she reached through the bars and grabbed him by the back of the head and pulled him in and stuck her tongue in his mouth. <laughs> and, you, know, you know, they're five times the strength, five times the strength of a human, so there's no, there no choice about what you were going to do there. So, yeah. Well, I could have had her up for sexual assault, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just saw a report uh, just a few days ago that there's now evidence that thousands of years ago uh, there was some interbreeding between chimpanzees and bonobos. Yeah. Which is interesting because people always say, you know, that bonobo, they're always holding up the bonobo as the counterexample to the aggressive chimpanzee right. thing. Right. And so here they are actually there. Probably the ones that we have now are combinations of the genes from both yeah. species. Yeah, I think there's a lot more, a lot more mixing. And in fact, when I was speaking with Franz, I, I said to him, like, okay, Franz, what, what is a species? What does that really mean? And he stopped and he said, never ask a biologist that question <laughs> because no one really knows. It's a, it's a convenient fiction, you know, like, because the, the, the definition that I know is if they breed, there will be no viable offspring. But I said, so can chimps and bonobos breed? And he said, yes. uh, I think they can. And the offspring will be fertile. I think they are. Then, what, then how are they two separate species? Yeah. Well, their behavior is very different. Well, okay, I don't know. It's, yeah, well, yeah. What about uh, human or homo sapiens and Neanderthals? Uh, yeah, they there's also obviously, obviously a lot of interbreeding there. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. I, I think, you know, Psychologists have this down, prototype theory, mm. okay? Any classification 
there's prototype that defines, basically is, um, illustrates the characteristics ascribed to that category. And then there are fuzzy boundaries around the edges. Right. right? So as a, the, fam- the best example, I guess, is birds. So what do you think of when you think of a bird? Well, sparrow, eagle, whatever. Uh, what about penguins? Right. You don't think about penguins. They're out on right. the edge of the prototype of bird. Yeah. But they're birds. Yeah. Right? Or dinosaurs. So when you say, you know, the word species doesn't mean anything to biology, well, it does mean things, but it's got fuzzy boundaries. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So now I'm thinking about your situation. You're, you've got this military background, but you're entering into... The 1960s in the university, your uh, w- what kind of man were you? Were you like when you saw the whole counterculture thing happening and the the anti-war movement and the free love and the hippie thing? Were you like I don't know those people, or were you sort of with those people, or where where okay. were you in that? Well, most of that started about the time that I got my PhD, so I wasn't a student anymore. Right. Um, my first year out, as I said, I was at Princeton, uh, as basically as a postdoc. I didn't call it that then. Um, it had not yet got to Princeton very much. Princeton was a couple of years late and catching on to this. But I remember I went to a Joan Baez concert, and I loved Joan Baez singing. Mm. And it was the evening of the commissioning day for ROTC cadets. So they were celebrating, and they, they brought their dates to, uh, to this concert, and um, they were in the uniform, and so on and so forth. And among other things, she sang, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Mm-hmm. And I thought, how insensitive can you get, right? Here's a bunch of guys about to go to war, Some, most of them anyway, newly commissioned officers, that's where they went, and she's singing about, you know, go, going. they will go to cemeteries, thanks a lot. So... I guess base, my, my answer to your question is basically I'm almost always on the side of the soldiers. Mm. I'm not necessarily on the side of the politicians that send them in harm's way. Yeah. But once they're sent in harm's way, I support them and, sure. and I want to support them. Um, politically, when I, when I get back, came back east, I told you I spent a year at Illinois, came back east and, and, and worked at Rutgers. I taught in the evening school. Evening school students are very different, yeah. right? They, had, they were out in the real world. They knew what the real world was all about, which the undergraduate, normal undergraduates didn't. Um, they had families. They had jobs. Right. Um, they took the responsibility after their day's work and when looking after families to study. Yeah. Uh, I admired them without reservation. I thought they were wonderful people. Yeah. And they were not involved in the whole sexual revolution and other kinds of revolution business. And in fact, you know, they were, they were always saying, well, I hope this doesn't disrupt the teaching of the evening schools, university college it was called, and so on. And it didn't. We kept, we kept things going. Otherwise, um, well, look, I was in Budapest when the, Russian, the Soviet army captured the city. And I was in Vienna when the Soviet army ruled a quarter of the city. And I had relatives left back in Hungary who were there when the communist government, by various nefarious means, took over the country. So I knew a bit about what the communist governments were really like. 
So I was never in the least attracted by the North Vietnamese Ho Chi Minh crap. Um, and, um, but I, I did come to the conclusion after a while, I guess probably around 1970-ish or so, that what it was doing to the United States was probably not worth con continuing it. Um, I'm not sure that I was right. In fact, I was probably wrong. But I, you know, I, I was seeing my students going off and not coming back and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And then this, the riots in the universities began, and that really annoyed me, putting it very mildly. I was furious. Universities didn't make the war. The universities didn't make the uh, discrimination against the inner city, what we then called Negroes. Um, so why, why destroy the universities? And they were being destroyed. Um, and I was very upset by that. So if, if you're asking, was I on the side of the students at that time, I was on the side of the students on some issues, like I, didn't, I was not support, support of the draft and that sort right. of thing, but the way they expressed their dissatisfaction I found unacceptable, to yeah. say the least. Yeah, I imagine it, it would have seemed very naive for someone coming from your yeah. experience. Yes, and especially when they started chanting about Ho Chi Minh, you know, Try living in a communist country for right. a while and see how you like it, right. if you don't like the United States. Right. Um, and I went on some peace marches, and as soon as I saw the North Vietnamese flags show up, I left. Uh, I, that, that's not something I could tolerate. Anyhow. I think um, a lot of people listening to this, in the audience skews pretty young. You know, older people don't know what a podcast is. I, I didn't know what a podcast was till I started making them. Um, so I think a lot of the people listening to this don't understand what it was like when the Soviet Union existed, what the world felt like then. Yes. You know, I remember that the nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war was omnipresent and uh, they were uh, a potent force and you know there was, it was playing out all over the planet so I think now people might look at Vietnam and, and see it as the sort of thing that's happening in Afghanistan or Iraq where mm -hmm. it's just the United States you know being a bully in my opinion but Vietnam was part of this whole global struggle um, there was a very different context, I yes, think. Yes, and now yeah. with Putin, it may be coming back. It could be, yeah. See the latest, the, the defense minister, whoever said they now have a missile that could destroy a country the size of France. So the only country in the world, he said, and that's a quote, that could turn the United States into ash. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm less concerned with, this, with the Russians... You know, their economy's a shambles and, you know, they're totally corrupt. And But Putin is a smart guy. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. He's a very smart guy. Well, just yeah. remember, uh, in 1931, 32, 33, yeah. the, the German economy was a shambles. Yeah, right? yeah, you're right. That's what allowed yeah. Hitler to rise. Yeah. What do you think about the, the corollaries between Hitler and Trump? Have you seen any of those commentaries? Yeah, I've seen a lot of it. Um, <laughs> laughable yeah yeah uh, you have to be pretty ignorant about Hitler uh, yeah to make that kind of a parallel you, you think it's basically that Hitler was much more intelligent than Trump is no Hitler was much was much more of a fanatic and uh -huh. uh, came from a t culture where 
tyranny and one-man rule was the norm mm. historically, right? The emperor and then, right. You know, right. Trump is running for election. Right. There's, there, I don't see uh, uniformed Trump thugs out there beating up Democrats in the streets yeah. uh, or murdering them, which is what the SA was doing right. uh, before Hitler took power, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, yeah. it's silly. So you were you were ten, you said, when the Soviets came in. So right. your whole, uh, I guess your your childhood before that was spent during the war, in the war years, and most the, of it, the tumult yeah. of, yeah, yeah. That uh, do you have clear memories of that? Oh yeah. So that's shaped your your life subsequently in profound ways. Would you say? Well, not so. I well, hmm. I don't think so. In some ways, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the Hungary got into the war in 1940, so I was five years old. So my first five years were a normal, ch normal childhood, mm. basically. There was some anti-Semitism, but nothing all that serious. But from 1940 to 45, there was aerial bombardment, very heavy bombardment in Budapest by the RAF and the U.S. Army Air Forces, uh, and then by the Russians, the Red Air Force. Uh, and then there was a, a long and very severe siege of Budapest when the, the Soviet army was fighting basically house to house, street by street, and so on. Um, so yeah, that, that made a difference. And one, th one thing that it taught me was um, it's not good to be unarmed if your enemies are armed. Mm. Um, you know, there's all this stuff, and, and, and the thing that that I think really underlies much of my political positions is that um, one, one can make war, but it takes two to make peace. And the, if the other side doesn't want it, if you disarm, all they're gonna do is eat you up. Mm. Right? So when the disarmament movement was going on, I was always saying, okay, as soon as they disarm, we should disarm, or mm -hmm. you know, maybe at the same time. Now you, remember, you may remember uh, Charles Osgood's thing about gradual reduction in tension. Charles Osgood, he's a, a journalist? Oh, a psychologist. Oh, psychologist and so he's saying, you know, let's take a step, uh -huh. ratchet down the tension. If they do the same, mm -hmm. then we take another step. If right. they don't, then we go back up again. If that's right. what, yeah. And right. I, I like that. Right. That's, I mean, I'm in favor of peace. Right. But not by surrendering. Right. Okay. Or by making yourself defenseless. Yeah. Do you think that that sort of naivete that that you're referring to? Do you think that that's more prevalent today in the sort of American culture? Um, it's. I certainly think it's prevalent. Um, in, I guess in the 60s it was so also, certainly among the younger generation. Now, you know, the people who are the younger generation now are the older generation, and many of them have carried on that uh, attitude. So maybe it's more prevalent because both age groups are right. uh, experiencing And also, also because of the, you know, you mentioned the draft earlier, and the absence of a draft means I think that it's easier for people who've actually experienced war are so isolated and sort of minimized. Yeah. The voice, their voice is so minimized in the national dialogue. Yeah. They're not coming back and teaching in universities or, you know, talking to their parents who are working on Wall Street. They're, they're already sort of uh, economically and socially marginalized. Yeah. Mar well, marginalized. Yeah. yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, um, it's yeah. One one of the good things about the draft, I think, uh, and from my own experiences, I met people in the military that I would never have met. Yeah, um, you exactly. know, living my middle class, right. university oriented life, um, and I think that was good for me. And I also saw places that I would never have seen otherwise. Right. And good for the country, yes, right? I mean, to have that communication across class and race and yeah. everything is a very yeah. important part. And rubbing shoulders with the real world is also good, a good idea. Yeah. You know, the kids now, you know, you go from high school, you go, to, go, to, go through high school, go straight to university, go straight to some white-collar job. You never really find out what the other half lives like. Yeah. Yeah. The, the basket or, or the of other ninety percent, as Hillary said. <laughs> right. the, yeah. yeah, clinging to their guns and religion. <laughs> uh, was Einstein at Princeton when you were there? Uh, he had just died very uh, just just shortly. So there's still still some good Einstein stories going around <laughs> about people who knew him. Yeah. And uh, I spent a weekend at Oak Ridge with uh, Wigner, um, Eugene Wigner. I don't know if he's a he, Nobel uh, physicist uh, who was. In the Manhattan Project, so um, he knew he knew Einstein well and all the all those guys. And Oak Ridge was that Tennessee, a, was a, a laboratory? National lab? Yeah, yeah. 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 So Wigner was uh, sort of he wasn't the director, but he was the most important advisor, mm. and he he decided it might be a good idea for them to have a psychologist on on staff. Mm. So and he happened to know my mentor, uh, Jack Vernon, who suggested that I would probably be a good person for that job. And so Wigner invited me to spend the weekend with him down there, mm. which, which was a great honor. He yeah. was the first Nobel laureate I'd ever met. Wow. And uh, the first. And he's Hungarian. So you've met others. He was Hungarian. Hmm? You've met others. Oh, yeah. I've R met bunches of others since then. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so drop some names. What other no Nobel laureates? Like drop names. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. They'll come up naturally. I have one who's a good friend with Danny Kahneman. Oh, uh, yeah. The yeah. Thinking Fast and Slow. And he was here. Oh. He was at UBC uh -huh. uh, when I was the head of the department oh. for several years. Right. And, and um, he and his wife and me and my wife were quite friendly. And, you know, we went to the theater together and all oh. that sort of thing. That's great. Anyway, um, yeah, so Wigner and I had lots of conversations about what I would do there and all that. And at the end, I decided that I'd rather be an academic. Mm. So, you know, I said, thank you, but yeah. I'm not really interested. Yeah. Um, how did how did we get into that? God knows. <laughs> <laughs> Einstein. I asked if oh, Einstein, yeah, Einstein was was it Princeton. No, I think my favorite Einstein story was that he was walking along Nassau Street. I don't know if you know Princeton. But no, that, that's the main no, street. No. And I met a friend and, and started chatting. And when they were finished, Einstein said to him, "Okay, wh when we met, was I going this way or that way?" And his friend said, "That way." And Einstein said, oh, good, then I've had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing slippers, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a filthy shirt and probably smelled of high heaven, which was he, he was famous for. Oh, really? In his old age, yeah. Mm -hmm. he, like many old people, he sort of neglected his yeah. hygiene, I guess. Well, yeah, I don't know. Priorities. I, I yeah. guess if he got, he's in his head, he's thinking. Yep. Uh, he, he's one of those characters from history that I would love to meet. You know, those yes. typical questions, who would you invite to dinner? You know, he's definitely one. Oh, yeah, if he changed his shirt first. Yeah, <laughs> definitely have to clean him up a little bit. But he just, it, I mean, I, I don't claim that I, I'd be able to understand. It's not like we'd talk about theoretical physics or something, no. but... 
he seemed like a really nice person and a good sense of humor and a rascally intelligence, which I see you have a big book by Mark Twain over there. He's another one. Yes. I imagine Mark Twain and one Einstein of, would have my a heroes. great conversation. Yeah. yeah. Is he what Mark Twain's one of your heroes? Mm -hmm. What is it about him that, that you appreciate? Well, partly his versatility. Mm. Uh, he could write about so many different things. Yeah. Uh, I think he was very perceptive about international affairs as well mm. as about the United States. Yeah. He was a great writer and, yeah. and a sly sense of humor that yeah. uh, I just love. Um, and you know, basically, I'm an oppositionist. Mm. Okay, and. Um, I tend, in, in all of my research and in my political opinions and everything else, I tend to react against what is supposed to be, we all know that this is the truth, mm. right? And, um, and that was Mark Twain too. Yeah. I mean, he, he criticized yeah. uh, the things that he thought needed to be criticized, and I like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I quote him in Sex at Dawn, I, I quote him quite a bit. Um, letters from the Earth, I think mm -hmm. is a. Yeah. Uh, he says he's hilarious. He talks about masturbation. He's very open. You know, that, yeah. he gave this talk where he said uh, he's talking about how masturbation wasn't a very good um, job prospect, and he, he just totally straight. Uh, you know, there's not much money in it. And <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, I don't remember what it, but you know, even today you would be embarrassed to stand up in front of people and talk about masturbation yeah. and he was doing it in what 1860 70 I don't remember exactly when he was writing um, yeah yeah Mark Twain is one of my favorites as well now as an oppositionist how has that served you in academia <laughs> <laughs> I mean you've you it's hang out with Nobel laureates so you it's, must it's be doing all right you know but I have tough. not suffered from it as far as I know huh. um, and I don't quite know why, because other people who've done the same thing I have yeah. have suffered from it. In my scientific work, I don't think I've suffered from it very much, partly because everything I say is backed up by data. Right. And you can argue with my opinions, but you can't argue with data, right? Um, so I've, I've got, had some controversies with uh, people about solitary confinement and that sort of thing, but mm. no, nothing that has really damaged me as far as I can tell. Um, the other stuff that I've done, the research on survivors of genocide and people who work in the Arctic and Antarctic and space, um, have gone against the, the received wisdom of the time, but I had the data to back it up. And for the most part, I think, uh, my, to the extent that I had influence uh, on the field, um, it tended to accommodate me rather than the other way around. Interesting. Um, so there's mu there's much more attention paid now to resilience and post-traumatic growth or post-experience of growth. Um, more about uh, optimizing the environment and work schedules and that sort of thing. Instead of just having countermeasures to reduce the stress, you try to get away from the stress. Um, try to get people to. Um, to function better, not just well enough, hmm. etc. So I, th I think people, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not the only one doing that, but I think I was one of the relatively early ones doing that. 
I think one, it got a great boost when uh, Marty Seligman invented the term positive psychology. Mm. I mean, th that, uh, that movement has been around much longer, much long right. before Marty did that. Right. But giving it a name sort of consolidated sure. all the people that, that did do that sort of thing. And, and I've been doing that sort of thing all along. So the thrust of your research, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that people are much more resilient and, and have a greater capacity to overcome traumatic experience than yes. they're generally given credit for. Yes, yeah, that's right. And, and, I, and I know why. I mean, the, the early research on Holocaust survivors, which was the prototype for that, um, these were people who had undergone horrors in the concentration camps that had no precedent, okay? So when they went to see psychiatrists and psychologists for research purposes or for treatment, um, the, the things that they had gone through, I, I hate the term, but it was secondary traumatization, so that the, the professionals that talked with them were traumatized by hearing about it. Yeah. And they could not imagine how anybody could recover right. after those experiences. Well, fact of the fact of the matter is that you know, we don't know the percentages because people died and so on, but a very high percentage did recover. And, I, and I've done a lot of studies with Holocaust survivors and some with survivors from Rwanda and Cambodia and that sort of thing. And uh, they put their lives back together. And, um, you know, the, the, I guess my favorite example is the Holocaust survivors because there's more literature on them than anybody else. Right. For one thing, there's been a longer time to look back and collect the data. And also, Jews tend to be more, more of them tend to be introspective and then write about their introspections than Rwandans, I think. Mm. Um, and there were so many. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. Well, and they were, they were literate, so many of them, yes. you know, when yes. they went into the experience, they were already academics or writers or thinkers. Yeah. I'm sure Viktor Frankl, you're very familiar with the man's yeah, search for course. meaning. Do you agree with his thesis that the presence of meaning was the sort of definitive uh, it was, factor? I don't know if it was the definitive factor, it was certainly one important factor, yeah. And is that? And meaning could come from all kinds of sources. So it right. could be adherence to political movements. A lot of the communists hmm. managed to survive and they helped each other too, so that, that helped. So there's community. Um, yeah. yeah. So we, we've just finished a study on Jehovah's Witnesses who were in the concentration camps. and. Um, yeah, they lots of mutual help and solidarity and, you know, morale boosting right. and all of that. So there are external factors with, if you're embedded in a yeah. community, like if you're in prison and you're one of the Aryan Nation Brotherhood or something like that, right. it's helpful. Yeah, exactly. But also, but what about the internal factors? Yes, that too. Um, faith uh, in something. And in, in some cases, with, with the Holocaust survivors, for example, um, some of it was religious faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of it was uh, faith in some magic charm that they had or mm -hmm. something that the, uh, an important rabbi had blessed that they were holding on to. Uh, and some it was just faith in their family, that they would be reunited with their family. Um, some of them were motivated by not allowing a victory for Hitler, mm -hmm. by letting themselves die. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there are lots of things like that. And, and those are the people who tended to survive, and those are the people who tended to really do well afterwards. So when they came out, the ch child survivors were particularly interesting. When the child survivors of Buchenwald, for example, uh, were studied, um, 
the consensus of expert opinion was that most of them would live out their lives in mental hospitals. Not all, but and but those who didn't uh, would be unable to, to do work, unable to have families, unable to love anybody, because they didn't when they were right. liberated. Right. Well, <laughs> it turned out that um, all those predictions were wrong. Yeah. So the, the, the example that I like to cite, which, which really is misleading in a way because it's, it doesn't speak to the large um, average of, of survivors, but just, just as a, an illustration, uh, there has been a Holocaust survivor, at least one Holocaust survivor, winning in every category of the Nobel Prizes. Mm. Okay, so the science ones, the literature, peace, everything. Okay, yeah, um, and the vast majority of them that are still alive, as far, you know, or that were alive in the last twenty or thirty years when I was doing my research, um, had families and they had careers or jobs or businesses, um, and and we asked them when they were in their seventies or so, look back on your life, what do you think? And the overwhelming majority said, well, I'm happy with my life. I think I did well. It was serious. I contributed to society. I brought up nice children. Um, I did good work. I was respected in my profession. Right. And I'm happy. And, and there's this, this issue of, of when you're coming near the end of your life, do you look back on it with despair, that it was wasted time, you know, that you didn't accomplish anything? And did you think of death as a terrible ending to a terrible life or did you think that it was it's going to be a kind of natural end to a good multi-decade experience most of them was the latter hmm. so they're you know they didn't want to die obviously yeah. um, very few people do but um, but they looked back with uh, contentment on uh, on their life do you think that they're having been exposed to so much death at a young age made their relationship with it, I don't want to say healthier, but somehow more realistic than those of us who live our entire lives protected from, you know, I, I kind of feel like, especially in American culture, we're so isolated and um, blinded to the reality of death. Coddled. Yeah, whether it's like the source of our food, we never see anything get yes. killed. It comes in a little package and, you know, right. and the people you send them off to some place where they die and then they're buried and you cremated and yes. it's all, uh, you know, pushed away. And uh, and I feel like th what that does, it's like the hygiene hypothesis, you, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with. It. I see that everywhere in, yeah. in our politics and our psychology. The things that we think we're protecting ourselves from grow in their power to actually hurt us because we're not exposed to them yeah. at a natural no point. Defenses. Yeah, yeah. yeah and the other, another aspect of that that always gets me is, is people think of nature as a park. Yeah. Right? So you can go out, we have this all the time here. Uh, you go out hiking in the woods, you encounter a bear yeah. or a cougar or whatever, and um, 
Yeah, so what, you know. The ni- oh, look at the nice bear. <laughs> Until it comes and eats you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and so people get into trouble with wildlife all yeah. the time because of that. They, they can't imagine being attacked by an animal. Yeah. And they're, I mean, those animals out there are red in tooth and claw. Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, yeah I, I think, I'll give you an example. I did a study of um, survivors of natural disasters. Oh, and uh, including the uh, the great uh, hurricane in that hit uh, New Orleans a few years ago, Katrina. Katrina, right? There was one little community in New Orleans that was that was um, a, a, a magnet for former boat people from Vietnam. Mm. Okay. Uh, the shrimp fishermen. Yeah, there's yes. a big community. Yeah, yeah. fishermen, store, small storekeepers, people like yeah. that. And it was flooded out, and so they dispersed all over the place. And they were the first community to go back. They rebuilt, um, and within a few years, they were right back doing what they were doing before. So people were interviewing them, and one of them was asked, you know, her home was destroyed, her, she was scattered from her uh, social group and all that, her network. And somebody and and the interviewer said, you know, I mean, wasn't that terrible? Do you do you have do you have nightmares and stuff like that? And she said, you know what? Once you've survived Vietnam and getting out of Vietnam, nothing in the United States bothers you. Mm. Okay. So yeah, if you've had the experience of coping, it's not just having had experiences that were terrible, right? But having the experience of coping with those. Then and and a lot you know a lot of the astronauts this really boggled my mind because some of the astronauts were they're all debriefed after they come back yeah so there was this guy um, Leninger I don't want you to quote his name although it's public um, who, he was a, a medical doctor flight surgeon military flight surgeon um, so that's a pretty demanding and and sometimes uh, traumatic experience. Um, and he had gone through astronaut training and everything else. So he was part of a, uh, a shuttle Mir mission when they were together with the Russians. When he was debriefed and he was asked, um, has anything changed for you uh, since you came back? And he said, well, I have learned that I can cope with a lot more difficulties than I thought I could. <laughs> this is a guy who'd gone through all those other things, yeah. right? And he yeah. still had, right? So, yeah. yeah, if you manage to overcome serious challenges, uh, you can look back and figure that you can overcome other serious challenges if any crop right. up in your in your subsequent life. Right. Have you heard of, there's a book called um, A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. Mm. It's about um, disaster sociology. Um, okay. I'm, sure, I'm sure you know the scientist that she, uh, she yeah. was writing about in there. I can't remember. But there's a particularly uh, moving passage where she's, um, she's writing about the man who, I can't remember his name, but he's sort of seen as the founder of disaster sociology, who you know did a lot of this studies. Oh, uh, I think okay. he was in Colorado. Yeah. I think maybe. No, he. I mean, we 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 wrote a chapter for a book that he's supposedly getting out. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean. Well, he's he's on in years. The the man I'm talking about. I think he's retired. But she interviewed him, and he was talking about how over the course of his career, the 
all the studies he did pointed to one conclusion, which was that the people who had gone through these disasters, whether earthquakes or um, you know, a, a war and terrible things that happened to them, they looked back at that and they often felt that was the high point of their yeah. lives and the most meaningful time because that's when they they were doing meaningful work helping people they were had this community of of love and affection and intimacy with yeah. other people and so on and so forth and he concluded that the disaster is daily life normal life is the disaster <laughs> not these okay. intense experiences that people right. have um, this very interesting sort of switching was there anything in your research that I mean, obviously, people aren't looking back at the killing fields of Cambodia and saying that those were the best days of my life. Not likely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but on the other hand, they can look back on that and say it had good effects in my... I learned things that have been useful since right. then, and it's toughened me or... Right. Yeah, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Although, you know, there is the, the bias that we're talking about the survivors, right? We're not talking about the people who, yes. who couldn't cope. Really. Um, and I'm sure there are many of them. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, one, one, there's a um, a phrase that I that I really um, like. It, it gets it's called the shattering of the assumptive world. Oh, that's a beautiful um, phrase. And that's what those things do. You know, we we're used to certain acts having certain consequences, right. and we assume that that's the way it is. Right. And then when you're in that kind of situation, it's suddenly not like that anymore. So no matter how good a coper you are, or how tough, or how smart, or how anything, things happen randomly that you can't do anything about. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you look at, well, you look at Cambodia, you know, people were killed because they wore glasses. Right. I mean, who would expect something like that? Uh, or in, in the Holocaust, when they asked in the concentration camp for volunteers for a work detail, if you volunteered, you might go to a work detail and have better food and shelter and whatever, or you might go into the forest and be shot. Yeah. Uh, so you never knew um, what... Learned helplessness, right? Well, they weren't. They kept trying. Yeah. Um, but you never knew whether your attempts were the right things to do or not. Yeah. Uh, much, much of the time, not all the time, but much of the time. What is your... Now, you're a scientist. You're obviously a very rational thinker. Um, and yet a lot of what you said about the, the people who are able to cope with survivors, you talked about faith a lot. Where are you, are you practicing religiously or where do you, where are you on, on the question of religion and okay. spirit? <laughs> okay. This is a story I don't usually talk about, but, uh, I, I tell my intimate friends and, and my wife, my family, that even when I was uh, seven or eight years old, I was already a budding scientist. So during the, during the siege of Budapest, I was, I was hidden with Christian papers in an orphanage. And I had been taught to say my prayers every day. My, my family was not super religious, but conventionally religious, I guess. So, so I did, I said my prayers every day. Christian prayers. No Jewish. All Jewish, okay. And then one day, no, that's one thing. I was old enough to know that even though I was going to Catholic Church and, you know, crossing myself and all that, I knew what I really was. What's, what, yeah, okay. 
So, so one day I thought to myself, you know, I say my prayers to God every day and things are not all that great. Right? We were starving, we were cold, etc., etc. And so I said, okay, so I'm going to say my prayers every day for a week and then I'm not going to say my prayers every day for a week and I'll see which week is better. Uh -huh. And it turned out that the week where I didn't say my prayers, we had a little more food, we had a little more warmth, it wasn't quite as dangerous, there weren't quite as many bombs falling on our heads. And I said, okay, well, that proves that I don't have to say my prayers anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I guess basically I'm an agnostic um, because, as you say, I'm a scientist and a rational thinker, and I know you can't prove one way or the other um, without at some point going back to some kind of authoritative or authoritarian source that says, yes, I exist, or yes, he doesn't exist, and I don't do that. Um, but I don't think there is a God. And um, I, I respect and practice much of Jewish tradition. Uh, I fast on Yom Kippur, that kind of thing, but not with any religious um, substrate to that. It's, it's, it's being part of my people mm. uh, and respecting what my people have gone through uh, not only in the Holocaust, but for thousands of years before that, and now too in many places. Um, but yeah, basically, I'm not not at all religious. Mm. But there's value in being embedded within a community. Well, there's value in the sense that I like it. Yeah. You know. Um, and isn't there objective health benefit to certainly you're talking about happiness psychology and the positive psychology yeah. feeling embedded in a community seems to be uh, consistently it's, beneficial i think it's an open question really oh really i think so yeah. in, in extreme circumstances yes but in normal daily life yeah it's pleasant whether it has health benefits i don't know it depends on what community i mean if you have jehovah's witness and you you decline certain kinds of medical treatment yeah. that's not good for your health yeah, right? that's, that's for sure yeah yeah listen i feel like we've barely like uh, we're skimming <laughs> across the surface of a vast ocean here and i am almost embarrassed to uh to spend so little time with you and your work but i know you've got other things to do and uh, i'm really grateful for for you making time for this you, okay. i came out of the blue you have no idea who i who i am and well, you welcome me to your home and matt vouched for you you know so. oh. <laughs> <laughs> well that's worth something i guess uh, although matt matt doesn't like cats so be careful with him he's oh <laughs> I mean, that's very very suspicious <laughs> it, yeah. is, it is indeed uh thank you so much you, have you written any books that are uh for the a public audience or is there anything um, not really, no. Uh, I, yeah. I have a, I edited a book, several books, um, one on the, the Bush Doctrine, ah. uh, one on, the, the one I, I really liked, uh, I, I wrote one, one of the early ones on, on sensory deprivation, um, but I wrote one, or edited one, on, um, where I, I got uh, social scientists, mostly psychologists, but some sociologists and whatever, uh, who were child survivors of the Holocaust, to write about how their early experiences during the war affected their research and the way they theorized about human behavior and so on. And that was quite a good book, uh, I thought. Unfortunately, it had, it, had, it had very good reviews, but it had 
z practically zero sales. Really? So what's it called? Uh, it's called Light from the Ashes. Life from Light. The, Light from the Ashes. Oh, yeah. It's a nice title too. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, University of Michigan Press published it, yeah. which was nice. But they didn't do much advertising. I guess authors always say that the press doesn't do enough advertising. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But usually, I mean, you know, I've, I've done stuff that I really should write a book about. Uh, my integrative complexity research, which has, I think, serious repercussions in a variety of social science disciplines and, and applications, policy analysis, and that sort of thing. Can you give a quick summation of what integrative complexity is? Oh, integrative complexity is a cognitive variable, which... Um, we have a measure that you can apply to any kind of running text, um, interviews, um, articles, books, whatever, um, and analyze it to the extent to which the individual is thinking or what, what they're saying or writing is based on flexible thinking, information search, um, high levels of information processing, taking different points of view into account, seeing what relationships there are among them, that sort of thing. And, uh, and we've done a great deal of research on that, and many other people have taken it up. Um, How do you think we'd do on that measure? Excuse me? How do you think you and I would do on that measure, <laughs> this conversation? Um, well, you're asking questions, and, and I'm giving you kind of set autobiographical answers. So I, I, don't, I don't score as I go along. Uh, many of my students who have learned this technique come back and say, you know, I can't have a conversation without mentally scoring the other person's complexity. Right. right. But anyway, we've got some really interesting uh, results, one of which is that we can forecast the outbreak of war. Really? Mm -hmm. Based on, what are the texts that you're looking at? Um, we look at all kinds of texts, but many of them are uh, messages exchanged between governments. Uh, diplomatic interchanges. Yeah. And, uh -huh. and also the writings of high-level, you know, prime ministers, presidents, uh, uh, in the olden days, kings, emperors, and so, so on. So you can detect a drift toward you can armed detect conflict. A, you, can t you can detect a drop in complexity uh -huh. within a few months before an armed conflict that begins. That makes sense, because that's when you're starting propaganda. You've already sort of committed to that path. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, and uh, very reliable. Huh. That's fascinating. You should write a book about I that. I should, I know. Come but on, what are, what are I, you doing? I have, uh, I like to get on to new things. I don't <laughs> like to spend all my time doing, I, that's my problem with writing books. I yeah. have to write it all on one topic. Yeah. And I would much rather do more research, collect more data, and write an article for the journals. You don't have grad students who can that do can that? Write, or that can write a book. Who are desperate for yeah, publications? Probably. probably. But th the problem is that they graduate. Right, yeah. and then they do their own research, and they want to write that up. So they don't yeah. want to write up my book. Right. Yeah. 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 I always imagined, you know, I, I'm sort of a frustrated academic. I, I love teaching, and I, I love being around young people with smart questions, and you know, being involved in that whole right. exchange. But uh, I don't love uh, academia, especially in the U.S. right now. The whole political correctness. Me neither. Yeah. Yeah. As you might. Yeah, include from my could, opposition. Well, opposition. Is opposition. I hate it all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and you know, I think there's so much value in being opposed to the status quo. In in what was your phrase? Shattering the the assumed the assumptive world. The assumptive yeah. world. That's that's the job of a good teacher. 
you know. I think so, but now you, now you get into trouble if you do that. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I love about this podcast. It's, you know, I, I'm totally free to talk to anyone and talk about anything, and there's no administration or company or anybody between me and whoever wants to listen to this. Yeah. It's wonderful. So, yeah, it's maybe it's a new sort of it's a new way to, to conduct a seminar or something. I don't know. Well, you know, academia used to be like that. That's one of the things that attracted me to it. Yeah, that you could pretty much do whatever you were interested in. So people ask me, why am I doing the research I'm doing? So it seems like an interesting question. So I went yeah. and did research on it. Yeah. But now things have changed. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of, I was talking to a, a friend yesterday who's doing research on, um, he's a PhD student here at UBC and his, he's doing a lot of research on um, energy and the economics of energy world, uh, energy markets. And, you know, and so a lot of this has to do with global warming, of course, climate change. Right. And Without getting into too much detail, one of the things he's found is that the projections from the, I think it's the IPCC, who the, their models are based upon flawed assumptions about coal, the way coal would be used. Mm. And so he, the focus of his research is, is adjusting these models in light of what we now know about the way coal is used or not used and all that. And it's actually good news, but he can't get published because no one wants good news. That's right. You yes, know, and, and it's, it's like it's disgusting. Yeah, it it's like, but it's true. You know, as you say, if you have the data, then you have the data. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so he's getting peer review uh, reports back saying, well. You know, I can't find any flaws in this analysis, but I don't think this is a good conversation to be having right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've had reviews like that sometimes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a whole area we, we didn't get into, but that I find very uh, interesting is the, the political nature of research and how so many things are presented, you know, in my area, sexuality, for example, you constantly see research saying, you know, 60% of women uh, report that the ideal number of sexual partners in a lifetime is, you know, four. And, well, wait a minute. That's 60% of American college students. Yeah. That, that doesn't include Brazilian women in their 50s, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't include it. the whole world. It's just a bunch of, you know, 19-year-olds in their Psych 101 class. It's, it's unbelievable. Now, this is why I like doing the kind of stuff I, I've been doing for the last 30 years or so, which is getting out, much as I love lab research, now I, I don't do lab research anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing the archival stuff, the mm -hmm. analysis of documents right. and so And of course, the, the, the side benefit of that is I get to read a lot of interesting history and biography. Sure. But, uh, you know, we do, I did field research in the polar regions, Arctic and Antarctic. Oh, that must have that been fascinating. Fun. And we're doing research with uh, astronauts. My yeah. wife, who will be home any time now. He's a sociologist at UBC, uh -huh. family, family sociology, and she's the principal investigator on a, a project we have with astronauts going to the International Space Station. They fill out questionnaires before they go up during their training, twice while they're up there and twice after they come back. Huh. And, uh, you know, they're real people and really interesting people too. So I'll fun, fun yeah. meeting them. Real high achievers. Um, and so I, I'm I know quite a few astronauts now, and um, uh, 
you know, you get and real people facing real problems, yeah. right? It's not yeah. dragging some undergraduate because they have to have a two-hour experimental participation credit right. uh, and put them in some artificial situation and yeah. they say, oh, look, this is the way people are. Yeah. It's not the way people are. What, what do you think of, um, uh, oh, no, his name escapes me, the uh, Milgram, the Milgram torture experiments. What do I think of it? Yeah, because I, I mean, I don't know if you're aware that like, now there there are people who have looked back at his original uh, documents, research documents, and seem to indicate that the way he presented that uh, the results that I don't know, seventy percent or something of the participants yeah, were willing 60, to. 60-ish. Yeah, inflict yeah. severe pain. Turns out that was only one of 15 or 20 protocols that he ran. Yes, but he, he reported all of them. Did he okay. at the time? So we know that that was the highest number of compliant subjects, whereas in other protocols it went down. Um, so, you know, con I mean, concluding from his research from that early study, the first study, that you know, it's of some relevance to concentration camp guards or torturers right. in prisons or something. Right. Completely wrong, right. because this was a situation in which um, the the situ the setup was such they were doing it at Yale University. I mean, you know, Yale University professors aren't going to let you kill people, right? Right. Um, and they never saw the other, they never saw what was going on. They, right. they could hear the sub the other person, but they didn't see them. Well, when you're torturing somebody, yeah, you see them, and you can see that they're really being harmed. Yeah, uh, it's not at all right. the same thing. And um, and I think Milgram did a great job, I thought, uh, and very careful. You know, I don't know if you, if you know this, but but before he did the experiment, he wrote down the the protocol in detail, and showed it to a dozen or more expert psychiatrists and clinical psychologists and asked them what they thought would happen. And nobody expected that, even in that, that first uh, setup, the first design, uh, so many people would comply or that they would be as stressed as some of them turned out to be, mm. you know? And then people are blaming him. Well, yeah. you know, as though he should have foreseen what was going to happen. Yeah. And as I, tell, I keep telling my students, if we knew how the research is going to turn out, we wouldn't need to do the research. And if we knew how the media was going to oh, hack it up and yeah. misrepresent it, yeah, right. that's or, the problem. Or even colleagues who are politically motivated. Right, right. So I, I, I knew Milgram, and I, I, oh. I liked him a lot. It's a little bit hard to like. He was kind of abrasive sometimes. But um, he was very creative, very smart, and very careful. Mm. And he's not getting, I think, you know, his ethics were attacked um, shortly after the publication of the papers. And uh, I thought very unfairly. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm glad I asked. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or 
you know someone who does, please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me, I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.